0: Welcome to Women on Wealth, a podcast by women for women. Our mission is to empower women to embrace the discussion around wealth, demystify finance and market-related topics, and break down the emotions that surround these decisions. Your host is Julina Ogilvie, partner and wealth advisor with Principal Wealth Partners. She's a certified private wealth advisor and a certified investment management analyst with over 25 years of industry experience.
1: welcome everyone to Women on Wealth. And this is the third and final of our Lending Landscape series with Anna Simone, who is author of Live in a Home That Pays You Back. So Anna, welcome back one last time. And thank you again for all of your time doing this.
2: Oh, thank you. It's funny, things are changing so much that, you know, three short conversations with you over the past month, and, you know, so much is happening.
1: Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited to have this third and final one which is really addressing um the life stages of home ownership.
2: Yes.
1: And I we talk a lot in finance around individuals having a life stage and how everyone's unique of course, but there are a lot of similarities as you go through your three life stages as to what what you want, what you desire, what you fear and what your goals may be. So Um, I guess if you can, if you can kick this off and talk about, you know, first what these life stages are and, you know, how it affects, you know, someone's financial plan.
2: Well, you know, it's funny and buying a home, historically, you won't really see people talking about life stages that much. And I think it's because traditionally, you know, people bought their starter home and they, they say, this is my home for a lifetime.
0: Yeah, fair. But
2: people. But people bought starter homes when homes cost a hundred or one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars. But now, when you're living in an area where homes cost a half a million dollars, you're thinking, "What starter home? Yeah. You know, this is my home for a lifetime." Right. And so, if I'm sitting here today with Julita talking about the two or three stages of home ownership, what I'm really talking about is to make sure that don't think about your home as how long you're going to live in it think about buying a home renovating it refinancing it maybe buying a vacation or a second home and then downsizing i mean these are these are really part of life stages and it is so important and i really want to emphasize today that you incorporate a conversations along with financial planning with a tax a tax professional, because one of the things about home ownership and owning real estate is there are so many tax implications that we tend to forget about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But, Juliana, I wanted to mention that two days ago, the new census reports came out, and I have been busy, busy. <laughs> and I, I want to just start off our conversation today with a couple of interesting facts so especially, that especially benefit women. And um, then we could get on to what I call, you know, phase one of buying the home. Perfect. And just to recap, the first two programs that we did, podcast, we talked about the very high rate of appreciation for owning homes in Connecticut, just 14 and percent. Yeah. So if you bought a house in Connecticut for $800,000 3 years ago, that house would be worth over over a million dollars, about a million and almost $50,000. If you bought a house for $500,000 5 years ago, you would have earned $250,000 in appreciation. So real estate, investing in real estate in Connecticut is it's, it's very wise, it's very sound, and it's very stable. But for the women in our audience, I just wanted to share with you some new census statistics that I just discovered only in the past two days, because of these new announcements. And that is the single women are the fastest growing share of home buying market in America. Hmm. And there has been a 30% increase since 2010. Now that is a report by the National Association of Realtors. Now Freddie Mac did a study about why women are the fastest growing segment in real estate. Well, for one, women are more interested in owning a home, but according to Freddie Mac, women have higher credit scores. Huh. Now, the new census reports that I just got two days ago tell me that 21% of children in America are living with their mothers. Now, that's li- just with their mothers. And what is really going to surprise you is, of course, the census tract tells us what you know, the average wages are in the United States, which are, you know, a little bit lower than they are in the Northeast. It's like comparing the average householder earning $70,000 to $77,000. Okay, sure. But what is not surprising is on a national average, women are only earning 85 cents on the dollar than men. Still. However, here in Connecticut, According to the Pew Research Center, women in their 30s are earning 98% as much as men in the New London Metropolitan Statistical Area. Women are earning $0.94 on the dollar compared to men in the New Haven Metropolitan Statistical Area. Hmm. Uh, And in Boston, it is 97%. Wow. Uh, ratio. Okay. So the the wage, you know, the male female gap in wages has has always been you know, an eye opener yeah. in the United States and the Census Bureau started tracking the the wage gap in 1960. Right. And so in 1960 the wage gap was actually 60 cents on the dollar, which is coincidentally That's amazing. You know, Yeah. I kind of want to share that. So women today who are looking to buy their first home Mm -hmm. are women who have gone through uh, some kind of a separation or divorce or whatever that had to sell their original home. And now they are buying a home on their own. Right. Keep in mind that if you're applying for a mortgage from a housing finance agency, and you're looking to get one of the discounts, as you qualify as a first-time home buyer, if you haven't had a shared home with your former partner for the past three years. Okay. Usually, sometimes it's only one year. Sometimes it's two years because every state is going to be different, and it, okay, know, so it's state man, differential. Freddie Mac, you know, have programs too. So just keep that in mind if you did go through a change. Mm-hmm. and you were looking to start over on your own you are still eligible to get you know some of the discounts and incentives in your mortgage and will be treated as someone who is buying their first home
1: okay great that's and a so great
2: point. The, so getting back to the starter home I mean how are people buying starter homes today in the northeast when homes, Are averaging five, six, or $700,000. And it costs $150,000 in annual salary to buy that home. And so there are some different options for people. And one option I want to mention is let's say that you are working in Stamford and you have a beautiful apartment that you're renting in your and you're happy. You may be a one-income family or a two-income family, but I'm using Stanford as an example, similar to, to Boston, and it's similar to some metropolitan areas that have robust workforce. At Stanford, we have hospitals, we have finance companies, yeah. we have a lot of media companies, the television industry in Stanford that people don't know about, but if you are living and working in Connecticut mm-hmm. and you're looking to buy a home, you're seeing homes that cost a million dollars and you're driving further and further away from your office. Let's say you're working at a hospital, mm-hmm. you, whatever, wherever you're working, whether it's Stanford or Hartford or the Greenwich Hospital, wherever. Housing costs may be out of reach for people and depending on your family and your household structure, you may not be interested in having a one or two hour commute to work every day, just so you can own a home. Of course. And you may be very happy renting where you are. So one of my suggestions about the starter home option is You can be a homeowner by buying a ski lodge in Vermont. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can be a homeowner by buying a beach house in Rhode Island. We just look at look at a map and and look at a hundred mile radius. Mm -hmm. And what I what I'd like to share with you is spending two or three hundred thousand dollars on a on a beach house or a year round recreational home in Vermont. And I, I love to suggest Vermont because not only can you go skiing and there are a lot of places to have water sports, but a lot of the properties that are for sale there that are ideally suited for second home ownership are also good for beach swimming. And so you keep your apartment, you have long weekends And you and your growing family, you know, have a place that you can call your own, have a place where you can play the music loud, have the place that you can decorate. But the bonus to all of that is you have a property that is absolutely going to put money in your pocket Mm -hmm. because homes in along the shore of Connecticut or Rhode Island, right? are that you buy that are unheated now that are not year round living homes, beach communities Mm -hmm. are going to go up in value. Right. And then you have a um, a home in Vermont that is going to go up in value. So you can be a homeowner and still make that 10, 15, or even 20% a year appreciation.
1: Right. And, and Anna, you don't know this, but that's actually exactly what I did. Oh, you really? When I rented in oh. Manhattan and around Manhattan with my oh. early stage of my career, I oh. bought a condo in Vermont and I, I rented did. it for income. And yep. So I'm I just, had no idea. I know. I knew you didn't know. We've never talked yeah. about it. But no, I, I had no idea. Really That's no idea great. It worked for me. <laughs> so
2: well, one of the things that I discovered realis- uh, recently is that Amtrak has a train called a Vermonter. Yeah, and that train yeah. I took it from Stanford to Northampton, Massachusetts, to go to my niece's wedding. Yeah, but you can stay on that train and go all the way to St. Albans, Vermont. Right. There's like 20 or 25 stops. Exactly. And you can go to Brattleboro. So as your as your kids get older, mm-hmm. when they're 12, 13, or 14 years old, they might. Say I want to take the train up to the beach house because right. Dad's well, up there by himself or whatever. And
1: and, and it's, it's a great point because you have flexibility. A lot, a lot of individuals have flexibility with their career right now um, to to be able maybe yes. to utilize it more than I did at that. You know, I this was for me back in in two, You know, two thousand ten. Um, so yeah,
2: yeah. People, well, well, people are working from home, but also if you're driving up to Vermont in one car and one person wants to leave early and the other one is going to stay with their computer and at work remotely yeah. and stay in Vermont they're just knowing that that train is there and of course right. the same thing is the train goes to Rhode Island it goes to Kingston and Providence and
0: right. you know
2: all through Rhode Island or to Boston and so when you're thinking about your home and your life stages and your plan for home ownership Mm-hmm. and w- think about your hobbies, where you're working, where you want to be. And also think about the fact that no matter where you're investing, yeah. you want to be happy. It's a lifestyle thing. And yeah. being happy isn't always having that McMansion. If it, right. And we're still talking about your first home now. I mean, this is in, you know, when you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s and you're still working. But I mentioned the beach house Mm -hmm. and I want to segue into the move up house. Okay. Because once you have your start home, you might outgrow it. You're making more money. You've built up some equity and you're thinking, okay, it's time to get the million dollar McMansion. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are our options now? Well, in Connecticut, of course, we have the very long shoreline with, you know, Long Island Sound, and then we have a lot of other waterfront areas. But I just want to mention to you that in America, there are 51 million households that are living in areas that are at least a moderate threat to annual losses from national disasters. So when you're looking for that shoreline home, are you looking for the more expensive move-up property? You have to remember that, in addition to paying a much higher monthly mortgage payment, you will be paying a much higher taxes. If it's a condominium community, you of course will be paying uh, condo dues. Sure. But what's going on right now in America? I'd like to just share with you that. When you're moving up and buying the more expensive home, you want to make sure that that house is climate resilient. Okay. We, we are in an area that does have a moderate threat to national disasters, mostly, re, you know, not wildflowers, but pertaining to floods. Right. But to give you an idea, in 2021, the National Flood Insurance Program processed 45,000 claims in the United States, totaling $2.2 2 And do you think, in- Anna, that's
1: an average? Is that a general average, do you think? Or was, for, or was 2021 significantly different?
2: It was significantly different. I'll just give you another statistic. In 2021, there were 14.5 million properties damaged in the United States at a cost of $56 billion to recover the aftermath of both wildfires fire, wow. and floods. Yeah. Now, the homeowner disaster repairs and expenditures doubled in 10 years.
1: Wow. This okay. is what
2: climate change is doing. Yeah. So in 2009, as a nation, we spent $11 billion in disaster repairs. And we spent 2000, in 2019, right. we spent $26 billion. So there's, mm. we have... We have a challenge to improve the resiliency of our homes, and we also have a challenge to mitigate the risk of um, extreme weather-related disasters. Okay. So when you have $2 billion in flood insurance claims, what happens in the insurance industry is there are certain areas that are now turning to risk-based pricing. Okay. So, So if you've been reading the news lately, there are a lot of homeowners in Florida that could no longer afford insurance. It's because of the risk-based pricing. Yep. And so as a nation, the destructive, imp- the destructive impact of climate change is a threat to not only homeowners because of the potential damage, but it's also a threat to our housing finance industry. Mm-hmm. Because if people can't afford to repair their homes, they might stop they get delinquent on their mortgages. Sure, yeah,
1: and so like a spiral.
2: Yeah, well, you can be quoted two thousand or three thousand dollars a year in you know homeowners insurance on that McMansion, and then find out that you your taxes or you might be paying twenty thousand dollars in taxes, and then you find out that your city or town has to mitigate some losses to some floods. And your taxes can suddenly go up. And I know I sound like the Green Reaper, but after all, you heard it here first on Women on Wealth. Yeah. These are the things that you want to think about the future. When you're when you're thinking about moving up to a larger house, right. You people are always focusing on if I buy this million dollar house, am I overpaying it? Right. Um, You know what are the interest rates going to be, and they tend to be too. We can become myopic, and on the drivers of what we're always focusing on, the interest rates and the property values. Exactly. And what I'm saying, look at the potential, pot the potential for the increase in your hazard insurance, your homeowners insurance. Yeah. So I want to go back to that beach cottage in Rhode Island, on the shore, or other parts of Connecticut that may not even have year-round heat. Mm -hmm. The good news about that is you're not going to have a $3,000 insurance bill. And you don't have to worry. I hate to say it, but if something does happen, if there is a weather-related disaster, you're not going to be without your primary residence, you know, beautiful million-dollar home. Right. And so- So if I, can, if I can just recap the stage one and the, re, the stage two moving up. Sure. Look at the size of the house that you buy as your starter home. Mm-hmm. Go to the town, go to the city, start looking up the requirements for getting building permits. Find out whether or not you can expand 20 feet to the right, 10 feet to the left, 30 feet in the back. And the reason why I'm saying this is if you love where you live Mm -hmm. and you can afford a bigger house, you might want to think about just expanding the house that you're in and skip the phase two McMansion stage and or buy a second home.
1: Okay that's what and, I'm saying that yeah, and that's such a great point, because so many I, I I have to imagine that very few do that, and so you don't want to come into that unknown uh too late, so
2: well, well the other thing about that is uh, people have a big concern, let's say they they have kids in school, the kids love their school, they, they love their neighborhood, they're happy with their house, but the family has outgrown it, hmm the problem is because we have a 14% a year homeowners, I mean, rate in appreciation. Yeah. Someone who is moving up from the starter home to this larger home runs the risk of overpaying. Okay. I, I will tell you that statistically, there are more buyers for people who want a moderately priced house. And okay. so when we have a problem with yeah. a buyer's market versus a seller's market, it always takes longer to sell a multi-million-dollar home. I mean, we read about these yeah. castles and estates and yes. Hollywood people. <laughs> oh, you know, Richard Gere has a home in Westchester and he suddenly dropped the price $10 million. Right. <laughs> so his estate went from 30 million to 20 million. I mean,
1: Not everyone may want a tennis court or a basketball court or a bowling alley or who knows, right?
2: (laughs) You know, it always takes longer to sell a home because there's fewer buyers as you increase. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if a starter home in Connecticut is costing $700,000 for a family, right? That means. What does it mean for phase two? Yeah, phase two would <laughs> be two or two and a half, three million three million dollars, and that's when the taxes really begin to go up. And and you know what's funny? Yeah. Kids don't stay small forever. No. <laughs> and when and when when you outgrow a house, yeah, before you know it, yeah, you don't know, and it happens then, all
1: the time. It's so common, right? It's yeah, one of the kids- most common um, yeah. Scenarios that we find. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. And okay. so
2: Great. think carefully. And the other thing about the move up from from the little house to the big house is the the long term capital gain, the adjusted cost basis.
1: Yeah.
2: Jelena, as you know, because of because of the line of work that you do, you're talking to people about you know what is your long term goal or your plan for accumulating wealth. Mm-hmm. And when we buy a house and close on it, where it's exhausting. So what I'd like to suggest that after you unpack all of your boxes and you sit down and breathe a little bit, mm-hmm. get out your closing statement. Okay. okay? And, and what you're going to see when you look at the closing statement is you're going to see a lot of items that are going to be on your accountant's checklist when you file your tax returns the following year. Right. And, and that is, that's what leads us down to that rabbit hole where we forget about the long term future, because our accountant's checklist is going to say, did you buy a house? Did you sell a house? Did you, what did you pay in mortgage interest on your closing and Mm -hmm. What Did you you have any private mortgage insurance? What were the property taxes? And did you have any points? And so this is one dimensional thinking because all you're really doing is getting out your paperwork to react to what your CPA is asking you for. Right. But what you're going to forget about is that that closing statement has thousands of dollars worth of, Expenses and checks that you wrote out at closing that are not going to be tax deductible. However, those items need to be added to your spreadsheet, which I'll call the adjustable cost adjust, <laughs> adjusted cost basis. We talked a little bit about this with the last podcast. Yes. Every time you buy a house, you your goal is to shrink the profit that you made on that house. Because when you're living in the part of America where the average home might net you $250,000 capital gain over the lifetime of your owning that home.
1: Right. And and as a reminder, Anna, the way to shrink that basis, the easiest way to shrink that basis, right, is through improvements, correct?
2: Improvements. Well, the IRS, I mean, we as Jelena will make this very clear, is we can't offer any kind of tax advice. But my advice to you is to go onto the IRS.gov website and start Googling things because you'll find that the IRS is saying, if if you if you are increasing the value of your house, then this will be added to your adjusted cost basis. Yep. And so, all right, you're going to remember writing out a check to your your contractor for painting your house for $10,000. But you're probably not going to remember the time you went to West Asian Hardware and spent $1,000 on a lighting fixture.
0: Mm-hmm. You're not
2: going to take that lighting fixture with you when you sell. So whether or not you have plans to sell your house, mm-hmm. each year that you're living in the house, if you go right. into the garden center and you're buying a half a dozen trees or 30 or 40 shrubs or several hundred perennials, you're doing all of that work. So you're Absolutely. not writing out checks to contractors. You start, you add this to your spreadsheet. And, and, and so- Anna,
1: adding to, to the spreadsheet, because uh, I have to imagine the question that people are thinking as they're listening to this. Is do you have to keep a record of those? Re- and I know we're not tax advisors, but do you right, have right. to keep a red record of the receipt?
2: Oh, um, well, I don't think so. I okay. mean, because well, first of all, when we I do mean, our more information
1: tar- better, but
2: we're, we're looking at our MasterCard and our Visa card bills, So we're saying, oh, I bought something at Restoration Hardware or a Pottery Barn, okay. Right. But we're usually looking at our checking account statements when we're paying our contractors, but yeah. unless you're getting an audit. And you have really huge adjusted cost basis figures. Right. There's, there's, there's
1: something glaring that they want to look at.
2: Yeah. So, you know, to prepare for this podcast, I will, I will just share something with you because I, you know, these are actual figures. I sold my house last year Mm -hmm. and I paid like fifty. $50,000 Fifty thousand dollars to a real estate commission, and about twenty five thousand dollars in what I call the, the Connecticut transfer tax fees. Right. Right. I mean, that was seventy five thousand dollars that came out of my pocket. Though mm-hmm. so naturally, I'm walking away thinking that's you know that's less money than I got to spend. Right. But I looked up my accountant's you know worksheet on my taxes this morning. So I could tell you, share with you what these figures are. Okay. On my adjusted cost basis for selling my property last year, she included that I had $98,000 in expenses from the sale. Right. Now that's over and above the money that I spent on the improvements. And so the expenses for selling, it's a little bit like the title insurance when you buy a house, the legal fees. Mm -hmm the private mortgage insurance, all of these things that are not tax deductible when you file your taxes. Right. You need yes. to make sure that you're writing this down on your other worksheet Okay, so when, when you go to sell your house. So the profit that I made on my last home, and I did make a profit on it, Mm-hmm. Was shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, right. and I, I originally was thinking it was going to be because of the work
1: that I did. Absolutely, yeah. The and I, that I ninety-eight thousand that made my day. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it wasn't in my pocket, but at the same time, so we can't forget about the fact that over our lifetime, we have this two hundred and fifty thousand dollar individual. Mm-hmm. and this was since the 1997 taxpayer relief law and of course all of this is subject to change but if you if you own a home in partnership with your spouse yeah. or another person then that would be a half a million dollars in gain but when you're living in an area like the northeast where the average home is like $700,000 yeah. absolutely you can go through that $250,000 uh, pretty quickly
1: I'm thrilled that you brought that up, Anna. Thank you. Because I I also, you know, relating that to finance and investing. We're in, you know, we're in 2022 down markets. And, you know, that's one of the things as financial advisors we try to do is we try to mitigate and we take losses in portfolios to offset gains and to adjust the basis for individuals going forward so that we can mitigate that tax effect on them later in life. It's very, I think it's a very similar strategy that often gets lost in, in either investing or in home ownership.
2: Well, it's, it's funny because we think about financial planning and we think about how much money we're going to have in the bank and what are, but we're not thinking about all of the implications, the tax implications about home ownership.
0: And the reason why I mentioned
2: the climate resiliency is because you can have a devastating shock by, you know, something else. But Okay. Speaking of devastating,
1: yeah, I
2: <laughs> I want to talk about the final stage, which is the baby bo- all of us baby boomers, mm-hmm. and um, you know what to do about selling their home, and you know what some of the options people have, yeah. and I think that what we do in our senior years is we we tend to buy real estate, and we shoot we make our priorities and our choices are because we think we're going to be happy. Yeah. We, so we buy a home based on how we think we're going to feel, uh, what our lifestyle would be yeah. like when we get there. Yeah. And so a person that I, I, I met uh, briefly um, in Manhattan uh, was in her 60s. And of course, she had an apartment in Manhattan and she bought a house out of state, but she doesn't like mortgages. She's not comfortable with borrowing money. Okay. So she took a million dollars out of her IRA account
1: Mm.
2: and paid all cash for this second home. Okay. But she never moved in because she realized this isn't the lifestyle that I thought it would be.
1: Wow.
2: So she ended up selling the house at a little bit of a loss, and she had a real estate broker to pay. Yeah. And it was about a million dollars. So she lost about Uh $75,000. But unfortunately, because she took the money out of her IRA account, when she sold the house several months later, Well, the money that she took from her IRA account, and correct me if I'm wrong, Julina, that was treated as ordinary income for her.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So she had a million dollars in her IRA account, withdrew it, Mm -hmm. and then ended up paying $500,000 in income taxes.
1: Yeah, I'm assuming her tax bracket jumped up pretty significantly. She said
2: she was in a 50% tax, but I will tell you that in the short conversation I had with her, She told me um, she was in a 50% tax bracket and it was the biggest mistake in her life. And Mm -hmm. she told me this three times. I I don't know this person's name, but I did ask her permission to share the story. So I just want you to know she gave me permission.
1: I think that these are great conversations to have with an accountant, with an advisor, just to think of what the other longer term ramifications may be when you make these decisions.
2: Well, I think the reason why I wanted to share this person's story was because she bought a home, a second home, imagining what kind of life she would have there. Yeah. And then never moved in Mm -hmm. because I guess in interacting with neighbors or traveling around or whatever it is that she did, this happened to be an area where she went to college and worked for a while. Okay. So she had good memories from 50 or 60 years, year, 40 or 50 years ago. Okay. She's only in her 60s. So what I'm saying is when you're choosing that second home, think about so many different aspects outside, you know, selling your home. Mm-hmm. Do you really, you know, you know, people sell their home because they think it's too big and it it's too much work. Yeah. Yeah. But there were studies done because I wrote a book on reverse mortgages many years ago, and of course, what we learned at the time was that people were selling their homes, and they actually were healthier and happier if they could have stayed in their home. Hmm. So sometimes it's worth it's worth yeah. it to get help and get gardeners and people to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, another thing that I would like to say on this podcast is we think very much about being financially in having financial independence.
1: Sure.
2: But we, as women, we need to be emotionally independent mm, Yes, and by that. I mean, you have to be despite decisive. Yeah. You can't wait. If somebody tells you that you fought, you you have a leaky faucet, you have to fix it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the problems that people have as homeowners is they procrastinate and they, they, They don't trust the contractors with Angie's. I probably vetted a dozen different contractors just using Angie's list.
1: Okay, yeah.
2: And so, to be emotionally independent, you have to take the bull by the horns and take care of the house. And so, if it is going to be too heartbreaking. To sell the home that you raised your family, and you want to hold on to those memories, the one thing that is important to do is be prepared to start having people do the work for you.
1: Okay, that's a great because
2: point. We yeah. all know people who say, Well, I've been waiting six months for your father to fix this, and I've been yeah. waiting <laughs> a year for your brother to come and, you know, and chop down that tree. And and people You know, with the way people are today with their lifestyles, the same thing applies to people who want to be snowbirds and buy that house in Florida and keep their house in New England. That is all great, except that you can't expect family members to hop on a plane every time you need, you know, my daughter comes from Boston if I have a medical situation and, and she is coming here. um soon
1: (laughs) but um well it's 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 it's, a great it's different
2: when you're three hour three hour train ride or drive than hopping on a plane to be with your parent because they're they're going to have a a medical procedure or something done it's it's hard you have to be independent and taking care of your home and your travel and transportation
1: Absolutely, and, and, and I think home, home ownership we know is extremely emotional. It's ex, it's it's one of the largest financial financial decisions we make, and I think finding that balance in that decision is is um is a challenge, but it's 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 important. And so I think you addressed it perfectly on 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 how to yeah. consider it.
2: Yeah, well, you know, even downsizing it's 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 emotionally being independent oh, so that you. You don't sit around wondering you know who's going to take my dining room set i and or get upset because nobody wants it i can't imagine my grandmother my granddaughter wanting my dining room set and i have a new one from ethan allen i mean but my daughter on the other hand has this ancient 200 year old dining room set that was my that was been in my family for years because she treasures those antiques Sure. My granddaughter's like me, we like the min- minimalist <laughs> new stuff, <laughs> you know, kind of travel lightly. So, yeah, you know, to making decisions to downsize, the, 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 uh, the key word here is to get help. Okay. Yeah, and
0: absolutely.
2: In closing, I also, because I mentioned Florida, I did some research on this too this morning. Okay. Every state has their own laws about um wills in estates, yes, and we have an old saying and we call it in we call it the Florida trophy wife law mm-hmm. when people become widowed and they remarry, they really need to get a tax advisor and a financial planner and a state planner that can that can research the laws of any state that they're looking to relocate to.
1: Absolutely. Many
2: people remarry for religious reasons, and I respect that. But mm-hmm. I have known too many people whose siblings lost their entire inheritance. At best, you might get 50% of your, of your parents' estate. Mm-hmm. because the laws are very strongly in favor of the surviving spouse. That's why they're called the trophy wife laws. Yeah. And so the financial plan doesn't just end with the buying and the selling of the last house that you're going to own. The financial plan life stages actually ends with the property that is passed on to your heirs. hmm so if I left my home to my family and my grandson decided he wanted my house and was going to live in it, there has to be an official appraised valuation of that house. Right. And the, the adjusted cost basis of all of, of all of that work that I've had done over the years, that is going to affect how much tax my grandson would pay because he's going to inherit my house right and so it's kind of like a never-ending spiral but, um, <laughs> it is <laughs> you, re- you really need to think about all of the different decisions mm-hmm. of your life and you know just surround yourself with you know the right people absolutely yeah and uh, yeah okay it is a
1: very large puzzle we all live in right and putting the pieces together is can be complicated and getting help is I think the most important thing so well
2: you know we all we all want to leave that legacy to our children and our grandchildren and I can understand I've known a few i had actually I had a, a few employees that this happened to mm-hmm. yeah you know they they were devastated when their mother died right um, and and I can easily
1: it. I can easily relate that from an investment standpoint into into in, in regards to the type of account that you have, right, and what that account means and beneficiaries and how it's titled—that's uh, incredibly important. Well, Same thing. Well, yeah, yeah,
2: but but yeah. pe- people have have remarried a year or two later, and then they've they've passed on themselves, right. and then the person that they were married to only a year or two, uh, often out of state, ended yeah. up getting half or all of the home and of of the estate. And what my employee, the problem that she had, she was constantly flying down to Florida, is they couldn't sell the home and divide up the the um the proceeds from the home because the law at the time was that a person could not be asked to leave their house. They need a place to live. Right. And it's funny, the existing law still says you still need a car to drive. Mm. <laughs> there's, e- there's even automobiles <laughs> that are part of this act. So, yeah. you know, while you're young and while you're, you know, you've got income and you've got good advisors, I mean, it's the time to really start thinking about all of the possibilities, the right. changes absolutely can take,
1: but yeah, that's, that's a, those are great points, Anna. Thank you so much. Um, All right. Do you have any, any last thoughts as we sign off on the third and final podcast? And I, by the way, I would encourage anyone that hasn't listened to the first two to, to please go back and, and do so.
2: The first two podcasts we did about interest rates. And then the second one was about property values and the benefits of, of going green, of doing Absolutely. home improvements on your properties. Yeah. but Some great, great points to, in each
1: one. Anna, how can, how can people reach you?
2: People can always email me to on through my website, annadesimone.net.
1: Perfect, annadesimone.net. Yeah. I think the points that I think are, are important as I sort of summarize this is that getting help and advice can be critical. But number two, just organizing, being organized and keeping track, yes. having a spreadsheet yes. of your home. I'm already thinking of some points that I need to do when I talk to my husband about this later. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. And um you know, well, I'm happy to share my my tax return with you if you're thinking what would what would it be like? I mean yeah. it's it's we're making and, and the other thing too is we're buying homes and we're selling homes at our we are so wrapped up in the busyness of it all. Sure. you know, hiring the moving trucks, the getting the getting everything packed and unpacked and
0: it's buying so t- and
2: selling t- and renovating. It's all very stressful. And yeah. so it's just too easy to forget about the tax implications, yeah, absolutely um, that you might have anyway,
0: thank, thank you, you so Anna. much
2: for inviting me to three of your podcasts. No,
0: please, not at all. Please see the disclosures in the description of the podcast. This is not investment advice and should not be construed as such. Thank you for listening to Women on Wealth, by women, for women. Stay up to date by subscribing to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, please visit www.julinaobovie.com
1: or join us on Facebook and LinkedIn.